0: in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, the first 16 verses, Chapter 26 of Matthew's Gospel, this is the word of the Lord, listen reverently as I read to you. It came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume upon his body, she did it On my body, rather. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him thirty pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for an op- a good opportunity to betray him. Amen. So be seated. Pray with me. The oh Lord, we thank you. For your precious word. We thank you that you have given it to us, that you have ensured its preservation down through the millennia, and that um, it remains uh, authoritative, powerful, uh, and able to uh, minister to the souls of us, your people, in ways that um, nothing else can. We pray that you would minister to our souls, not for our sakes, so much as for your sake, that we might increasingly reflect your glory by being more and more like Jesus, who died. We pray in his name. Amen. Kids, have you ever gone into uh, the bathroom and... uh, Turned your back to the mirror, so, you know, the mirror is usually over, in most bathrooms, it's over the, over the sink. And so, uh, turned your back to the mirror and then held up another mirror. Perhaps your mom has a, has a, uh, uh, a small mirror that's handheld, that has a little handle on it so you can look at it. And if you take a, a mirror like that, a little small mirror in one hand, and you turn your back to the big mirror behind you and you, you look In that mirror that you're holding in your hand, um, you can see your face but you can also see uh, yourself holding that mirror in the mirror behind you by looking in the mirror in front of you. Um, What you're looking at is you're looking at a, when you're staring at that mirror and looking at the mirror behind you, you're looking at a reflection of a reflection. You see what I'm saying? You're seeing in this mirror another mirror reflecting you. So this mirror is reflecting what's behind you, which is reflecting you. And that's a reflection within a reflection. It's kind of fun to do. Uh, you might try that if you've never done that before. It's kind of fun to look at what you can see and how many times you can see yourself in those mirrors, actually, if you get it just right. Sometimes you can see several, uh, several things uh, happening several times over. Uh, Ask your parents about it, so they'll help you with it. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully. Uh, No, they will. Anyway, uh, there are stories in the Bible, and by stories I don't mean something that's made up. I'm talking about an account of what happened in history. But there are uh, accounts in the Bible that are kind of like looking in two mirrors, like I just described to you. That it, Rather than being uh, reflections within reflections like the mirrors, they're stories within stories, or accounts within accounts is a better way to put that. And this is a technique that is uh, fairly regularly used in the Bible uh, by the New Testament writers, in particular the Gospel writers, to, str- to stress uh, a point or to shed additional light on a, on a greater point that's being made uh, with a uh, story within that, uh, greater, a bigger story. And that's actually what's going on here, uh, in this, uh, section that we're looking at today, Matthew 26 verses 1 through 16. It is a story within the story. So this, the, the greater story that Ma- Matthew is describing to us or looking at, if we can use the mirror analogy, uh, in his hand, is the plot of the Jews The Jewish leaders, in particular, to kill Jesus, to murder Jesus, and, and also, that plot also involves how, uh, how that plot was initiated by, uh, Judas, uh, going to these ungodly men. And that's the bigger story, okay? But within that bigger story is another account, uh, the inner story, if you will, which is the story of Mary's anointing of our Lord Jesus. Um, and that is tied in with the with the greater story um, that is verses 1 through 16. Uh, and it's an important part of it. There are three things that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together here in this passage. First, we're going to look, obviously, at the uh, treacherous plot of the religious leaders to murder Jesus. Then we're going to look at the extravagant devotion of Mary toward Jesus. And then finally, uh, we're going to look at the wretched betrayal um, by Judas of Jesus. First, we want to look at this treacherous plot of these wicked religious leaders. It's always interesting uh, to be reminded of the fact that it was re- uh, religious leaders can be wicked. There are lots of wicked religious leaders in our world today, uh, even in the uh, professing Christian church and its various denominational stripes. Men uh, who are uh, pretend to love Jesus, be uh, servants of Jesus, but in fact are servants of Satan uh, and love Satan and uh, hate the true and the living God. Uh, they're, uh, they're all over the place, sad to say, uh, there are probably some even in our own denomination, uh, and you need to be aware of that and to be cautious uh, when you go to a church, especially when you join a church, uh, that you are not um, coming under the uh, authority of a wolf. At any rate, let's look at the the plot. Uh, these men... Uh, these men, uh, who are the, described here as the chief priests and the elders of the people, uh, are the religious leaders, and they've been wanting to kill Jesus for quite a while. Uh, we learn in Matthew chapter 12, way back in chapter 12, verse 14, we are told that the Pharisees, uh, there they're identified as the Pharisees, began to counsel together as to how they might destroy Christ, how they might kill him. That was way back in chapter 12. A little bit later, in Jesus' earthly ministry, recorded for us in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, uh, the priests and the uh, scribes there are described as counseling together to do the same thing, that is, to kill Jesus that was after the uh, cleansing of the temple. Actually, that is earlier in this week, uh, a few days prior to the point in time that we're looking at now. and, uh, the point is, this is something that has been going on for a while. These men have hated him, have wanted him dead, um, and they've, their hatred for him, and their anger at him, and the desire to get rid of him has only intensified over the course of Jesus' public ministry. Now, as, as religious people, as religious leaders of God's covenant, uh, people, uh, which is what they were, Uh, they held the office at least, Um, what they should have been doing was they should have been leading the people in looking for the promised Messiah. And having found the promised Messiah, they should have, of course, been leading the people in adoring him and worshiping him and trusting him. But that is not what most of these religious leaders were about. The vast majority of them hated him. Uh, And the reason they hated him was because they were unconverted, and Jesus' holy life and his searching, teaching, and preaching had the effect of unmasking for them the wicked hypocrisy of their own hearts. And they hated him for it. They didn't want to see the ugliness within their own souls, and he was making them see the ugliness within their own souls, which is, of course... What, uh, the way, what happens when unbelievers who are, remain unconverted, uh, are, when they are exposed to the gospel and to the teachings of scripture, that's what oftentimes happens. Is, uh, they feel the weight of God's law and realize they're disobedient, uh, to it, uh, and that God is angry at them and they hate him for it. And these guys are no different. And so they've wanted him dead for quite a while now. And finally, um, it gets to the point that we read of here in verse 26 20, uh, in chapter 26 uh, in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, it, uh, it comes here. It is Tuesday, by the way, of the week in which uh, Jesus went to the cross the last week of his life. He has just finished. Uh, a lengthy discourse with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. You recall, uh, the Mount of Olives overlooks the Temple Mount, uh, separated by the Kidron Valley. Mount of Olives is higher than the Temple Mount is, by a couple hundred feet, as I recall. 246 feet, I think, uh, is the difference in height. At any rate, something like that. Uh, and uh, they have probably been looking down on the temple, the beautiful uh, temple complex uh, that Herod had uh, so magnificently uh, built up uh and uh and the the all of that discourse uh took place there jesus speaking to them um on uh, all manner of issues related to his second coming and so on and the destruction of jerusalem and uh jesus concluded that discourse with the statement that we read in verse 2 of chapter 26 he said to his disciples you know that after 2 days The Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. The hatred of these uh, godless men has reached a uh, zenith uh, and Jesus is aware that uh, their plots to kill him, their desire to kill him, is going to uh, come to fruition uh, in two days' time. From the time... He delivered the uh, Olivet Discourse to the disciples. Um, It is Tuesday, as I said, of of Passion Week, as as we sometimes call it. Passover would come two days later on Thursday, which was the 14th day of the month of Nisan, which was Thursday of that week, was uh, when Passover would come. And he was going to be uh, killed the day after Passover, uh the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, which was Friday. And the religious leaders <clears throat> did not want to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him, yes, but they didn't want to do it during the feast, the festal period. Uh, they they wanted to uh they wanted to wait until after the twenty first of the month. Uh, 14th being uh, Passover, 15th through the 21st being the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which immediately followed the Passover. They wanted to wait until after the 21st to uh, arrange for Jesus to be killed. Uh, and they they didn't want to uh, kill him during the festival time frame, not because they somehow wanted to spare those um, those pious pilgrims, um such a spectacle of Jesus uh, hanging on a cross, or, or however they would kill him. Uh, they weren't sure at that point how that was going to go. Uh, they didn't, uh, they didn't want, it wasn't that they wanted to spare people the spectacle of Jesus' death, but rather they knew that there would be many of Jesus' followers among the pilgrims who had come into town for the feast. There were literally probably millions of people in Jerusalem and the surrounding area at this point in time. Because of uh, it was one of the three annual feasts that that uh, that uh, the pilgrims would come to Jerusalem for, and lots of those pilgrims would be come from Galilee, where which was really the center of Jesus' ministry, and so lots of Jesus' followers were going to be in Jerusalem, and they knew this, and they were afraid that if they had Jesus killed during the festival period prior to the uh, end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Jesus' followers could well riot. And then that would, could create all sorts of uncertainties for them and their power base and so on and so forth. And So they didn't want that to happen. So they were intent on waiting until after the Feast of the Unleavened Bread was over and all the pilgrims had departed uh, the city for their respective homes. but they want him dead. They want to kill him. He is a thorn in their side like nothing else is was for them, and they wanted him dead because they hated him. And so they did whatever it took. And as we'll see in a little bit, uh, uh, the Lord intended to speed up their plan uh, so that it would be in accordance with his plan. Uh, anyway, I want to to stop for a minute uh, looking at the the text and and make the point that an application of it. I think the Holy Spirit would have us, through the pen of of Matthew, see the religious leaders, these wicked religious leaders, and see in them something of our own fallen human nature that we all are conceived with. What the chief priests and the elders did with Jesus and what they did in their plottings and their, um, their sinister plot, uh, uh, cowardly plot, because they did it in, uh, in, uh, by stealth, as the text says. What they did and the wickedness that they showed this week is what any of us could have done with the nature that we inherited from our forefather Adam. It's important to remember that, and, and I say this because I'm thinking now of what we were talking about in Sunday school for those of you that were there. Um, we must always remind ourselves on a regular basis, I am, it's only grace, only God's grace that causes me to differ from the most wicked man or woman or child walking on the earth. That's the only difference. God has been gracious to me and not been gracious to that person, whoever that person would be. And that is true of these men. Now, they killed the Lord of glory. They killed God the Son. I mean, there is, uh, other than perhaps Judas himself, there isn't anything more despicable that you can even imagine, that even comes close And yet, you know that hymn that we sang here a little while ago, it was I that crucified you. Remember? It was was all of us. And we could have literally done it if we were there and God hadn't been gracious to us and we were in their positions of power that these men had. We could have done it ourselves. We must never, ever fool ourselves into thinking otherwise. Otherwise. One of the hallmarks of godliness is humility. That we understand what we are apart from God's grace and not give ourselves credit that we do not deserve. That somehow we're we're just more or less good people even without God's grace. Not true. Not even close to being true. The opposite is true, in fact. So I think the Lord would have us understand that. And by the way, if you're listening to me right now, remotely, or if you're in this room, I don't know. But if um, you have not uh, fled to Jesus and surrendered to him by faith as your Savior and your only hope of being forgiven by God and going to heaven and as the Lord of your life, the master of your life, if you have not done that, then you hate Jesus right now. You hate him right now. And you might say, no, I don't. Yes, you do. The fact that you haven't received Jesus means you despise him. That's why you haven't received him, because you despise him. You would yank God off his throne right now if you could. You would put a gun to Jesus' head and pull the trigger if you could. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's the case. The Bible says that unbelievers, indicates that unbelievers hate God. And you hate God. Regardless of what you might think. And that's especially true if he's convicting you right now of your own ungodliness. Of the fact that you are a rebel against him. Of the fact that you have been leading a life that serves only yourself. And you hate him because you know he doesn't like, he wants to have your life. He wants to have your allegiance and you have not given it to him. And you despise him because he insists upon it. And you hate him. And only God can change your wicked, hateful heart. Only God can intervene and take that evil heart away and give you a heart of flesh, uh, a warm heart that is warm toward Christ and loves Christ and wants Christ. And may God give you that heart uh, as a result of this sermon, I pray. But God wants us to see the blackness of our own heart left to our own devices in these evil men, including Judas, by the way. Perhaps especially most of all Judas. That we are all, in effect, Judas's prior to God's regenerative work in our hearts. But the wickedness of the human heart, and of these men in particular, is amplified in this text. And here is why I think the, the story of Mary and her, what she has done is embedded in this, this text here, uh, placed here because it is taken out of, it's chronologically out of order. That's one of the reasons why it's, it's kind of interesting because both Mar, Matthew and Mark, and I think Luke does the same thing, they take something that took place prior to Tuesday of Passion Week and they inserted it. And I think it's by way of contrast. To 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 highlight the wickedness of Jesus' opponents, and also highlight the love of Jesus' followers, and specifically of Mary, which brings us to the second point found in verses six through thirteen, and that is, um, in contrast to the treacherous plot of the religious leaders to murder Jesus, we have the extravagant devotion and love of Mary uh, demonstrated toward Jesus. Verse six. What happens, uh, starting in verse 6, is actually a flashback in time, as I've already indicated. Um, what happened, uh, when Mary's anointing of Jesus, uh, oh, took place a few days prior to Tuesday. Uh, very likely, almost certainly Saturday evening, before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, riding on the colt of a donkey. Uh, so, so now we're going from Tuesday, in verses 1 through 5, to back to Saturday uh, of the prior of the prior week, and so this takes place on Saturday. Uh, it takes place in Bethany, um, where Jesus had many followers, and he is. We see him here eating at the with his disciples at the home of Simon the leper, who, by the way, has been healed at this point in time. But the but um, the uh, gospel writers want to remind us of the fact that he was a leper. Uh, and was healed by the Lord, and, but his his fame, if you will, comes from the fact that he is a leper who was healed. And so he calls him Simon the leper. And he's eating at the home of uh, with his disciples at the home of Simon the leper, the leper and Lazarus and Mary and Martha. His two sisters are there. Lazarus has just recently been raised from the dead. So this may well be a celebration of of the mercies, the the healing mercies that Christ has shown to both. Uh, uh Simon and to Lazarus. Um, I suspect that's what it was. Well, we can't prove why that, that, that was the case. But undoubtedly, they were all very happy <laughs> at what God, uh, the mercy that God had shown them through Christ's uh, healing of these folks. But Jesus' mind is probably almost, uh, well, undoubtedly, uh, Jesus is quite preoccupied with what's about to happen the uh very uh horrifying events that are about to take place in his life. For of course on the very next day, as I already indicated, uh Sunday, uh he would be uh riding in on the uh colt of a donkey uh and be proclaimed by the population to be the Messiah, uh David's uh greater son, and he was going to accept those accolades and that uh that um, Uh, identification of him as the promised Messiah uh, in a way that was obvious to everyone. Uh, And that was going to set in motion events that were going to lead to the pouring out of his father's wrath upon him for the sake of his elect. But this is about devotion, this portion of this text, about what happened before that. And... So Jesus is present. He's reclining at a table eating. And as he's reclining at this table, Lazarus' sister Mary, and we, we know this from uh, the other, uh, when we compare the other texts, Mary does this extraordinary thing. Verse 6 Now, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him, and we know it was Mary, as i said, from other texts, came to him with an alabaster vial very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. Uh, The other text, by the way, is uh, uh, John chapter 12. Uh, We get some of the details of what happened that day from John chapter uh, 12, the account there. So she comes in, Mary does, and she has this jar of alabaster. Alabaster was a precious and a very delicate stone White stone, it was very beautiful. And so this, this vial, this, this vial is carved, hand carved out of alabaster stone. Um, and has, uh, within it, um, nard. Nard was a perfume from the Indian subcontinent, modern day India, that was highly prized in the first century for its wonderful aromatic, aromatic properties. Had apparently, a beautiful has a beautiful smell to it, uh, and it was extremely expensive uh, to have in one's possession. And she has a whole vial full of this nard, this expensive nard, and um, she proceeds to break this um, the long neck of this vial and pour the entire contents of it over the exposed portion of Jesus' body, including his head. But we also learn from other texts his feet as well. And then in this extraordinarily profound act of humility and devotion, she then takes, hard to say it, takes her own hair and uh, spreads the nard over his feet. John 12, chapter 3 indicates that's what happened. So the room then is filled with a fragrant aroma of Mary's love for her Savior. We are told that this perfume was worth almost an entire year's worth of wages. I don't know where this woman got this money to buy this stuff, but she had some really, really... um, She was a woman of means, apparently. Uh, She had a year's worth of wages in that vial. And she poured it all out on Jesus. Jesus. Matthew is making a point here. Actually, the Holy Spirit is making a point through providentially causing Mary to do this. And what is the point? Isn't it quite obvious? Mary withheld nothing of herself from Jesus, as evidenced by her pouring out this nard and breaking this expensive vial, um, which was indicative of the love that she had for her Savior. And she gives it all. You see, she gives all of herself as evidenced by giving all of this expensive um, nard to be purposed for anointing her Savior and her King. You see, this is the way you and I should love our Lord. Do you love the Lord this way? Mary wasn't perfect, she was a sinner. She had done sinful things. Uh, Her love for Jesus, even on this occasion, wasn't perfect. But it was real, and it was intense. And our love for him should be like that. Mine is seldom like that, I dare say. But it's what we should seek for. It's what we should pray for. It's what we should long for. And it's what this text is calling us to do this week and indeed for the remainder of our life upon the earth. To seek to love Jesus with an intensity that would cause us to do things similar to what Mary did for him that day. Mary's great devotion and love is contrasted here. It's The principal contrast, of course, is with Judas and with the religious leaders the wickedness and the the uh um the godlessness of these uh vile men but Mary's devotion is also contrasted with the reaction of the disciples not in the same way but still there's a contrast that is evident in the text we see her doing what she has done and then we see in verse 8 we read but there's the contrast um it's a um, it's a particle that indicates contrast uh just like the English but does, Allah in uh, Greek. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price in the money given to the poor. Now, all but Judas, amongst these men, loved the Lord. They loved Jesus. They were brothers in Christ to Mary. But they were practical men. They were uh, reasoning men, and they were practical men. And this act didn't make any sense to them, because they knew what the value of what was being destroyed and being used and never to be used again, as it evaporated into the air, the nard. And as the vial of expensive alabaster was broken, it could not be used again. They understood what was going on, and they saw, it was like, this is a waste. This is a terrible waste. And on just about any other occasion, it would be, right? But not on this occasion. We know from John's account that it was Judas who was the first to question the propriety of Mary's action. He wasn't the only one, but he was the first. He spoke up first. He wasn't concerned about the poor. I suspect the other eleven were. After, at, Ju- at Judas' suggestion that maybe they should be concerned about the poor and what could be done with that money if it were sold. But he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was only concerned about his own potential loss of revenue. Because why? Uh, as we know from elsewhere in Scripture, he was the one who was in charge of the money box amongst the apostolic band. Uh, and he used to uh, steal portions of whatever the monies that were placed in the box. And so if that alabaster jar and the nard had been sold, that money would end up in the box, and Judas would get his big cut by stealing it. And the fact that it wasn't being placed in the box because it wasn't being sold irritated him. He lost out. This shouldn't have been done because I'm the worst for it, was what was going on in Judas' heart. The other disciples, again, they were uh, probably concerned when they heard Judas speak of the poor. Yeah, that's right. What what, what about There's so many poor folks who could benefit from that money who were perhaps going hungry right now? They were genuinely, uh, undoubtedly concerned and saw Mary's actions as poor stewardship of what God had given her. But they were being insensitive, you see. They were being insensitive not only to her, but especially to the Savior. For Mary... Unlike the other disciples, Mary had seen something that they had not yet seen or understood in spite of all the time that they had spent with Jesus, listening to Jesus. Jesus indicates as much in verse 10. Why do you bother this woman? Why are you, why are you criticizing this woman, gentlemen? For she has done a good thing to me. The Lord of glory. It was a good thing. Why was it good? Because it was an act of pure love and devotion. And because it was shown to the Savior of sinners. The promised anointed one of God who was sent to redeem his people among whom Was Mary. Now, this in no way detracts from the responsibility of first century believers or of believers today to take care of the poor. Jesus is not in verse 11 there saying, For you have the poor with you always, saying somehow, Don't worry about the poor. That's not what he's saying. I think you all know that. He's merely saying that he is even more worthy of this being used on him than the poor are at this moment. Meaning, Tuesday night at Simon's house. What Mary's, Mary's deed was beautiful... Was because she had done what she could. She could give it. She had the ability. I had no idea how, but she had the ability, the wherewithal to buy it and to use it. It was hers to use as she saw fit, and she could do this deed. Verse eleven or verse twelve. For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. It was a good deed. Remember the difference between these two sisters in Scripture. And again, Martha was a believer too, but Martha was a server. Mary was a listener. We read repeatedly in the in the Gospels that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus. That phrase is said of her, I think, on three, maybe even four different occasions in the in the four Gospels. That she sat. She's always at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And she had, by doing that, by being a listener and being attentive to Jesus whenever he spoke, whenever she had the opportunity, she had come to understand from what Jesus had said, from his regular references to being betrayed, suffering, and dying, she had come to understand that that terrible event that he had prophesied was about to come to pass. And the disciples hadn't gotten it yet. She had. Because she had been careful to listen. And of course the Holy Spirit gave her grace to understand what she was hearing. But she knew what Jesus was about to willingly endure for her and for her people. His people, rather, I should say. And she wanted to do something to express her love and her gratitude to him for what he was about to do. And she was probably convinced that this might be her last opportunity to do so. And she took it. And by anointing Jesus with this costly perfume, she was, in effect, the text tells us, preparing him, readying him for his own death. It was a lavish act of devotion for which she would be remembered. Jesus indicates, which of course is, this prophecy is being fulfilled right now in this room. She's being remembered. Again. And note, by the way, that Jesus did not expect to return to earth anytime soon, as indicated by this. Verse 13. Verse uh, 13. Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall be, also be spoken of in memory of her. Another indication, and there are, I've pointed out several in the past weeks uh, indicating that it wasn't going, the second coming wasn't going to happen in short order, as uh, some had misinterpreted his words as indicating. So this is a bittersweet moment for Jesus. He realizes what she is doing. And why? That she is readying him for the awful uh, death that he was about to die, and yet he does not draw back from the task at hand that his father, the father, I should say, has given to him and charged him with fulfilling. He does not draw back. Even as this dear woman's behavior reminds him of that awful destiny of his this extraordinary act of devotion again calls us to imitate mary in ways that we can imitate mary we can't we can't pour costly perfume on jesus feet for he is exalted in heaven but we can still devote be Extravagant in our love for him in showing love for him. When you wrote the check that you might have might have written this morning and put in the collection plate, how did that feel? Were you happy that you were giving what you were giving? Or were you a little reluctant to put that money in there? You realize you're giving to Jesus, right? You're not giving to Covenant Presbyterian Church. You're not giving to the elders. You're giving to Jesus. Joyful giving of one's self and one's resources is part of how we can show extravagant devotion to Him. And I'm not imitating the Health, Wealth, Prosperity guys right now, by the way. I'm not imitating their message. But you do get the point, I hope. When you think about having to honor Jesus... On his day, the Lord's day, and the Lord's day, Jesus is the Lord, and it is his day that he owns. When you think of having to honor him in ways that he has called you and me to honor him, which is to desist from work, the work that we normally do in the other six days of the week, including cutting our grass, I would suggest. Does that, uh, do you chafe under that a little bit? Does that annoy you? Or are you gladly going to give him this day? You see, that's part of how we can extravagantly love our Savior by loving his day and honoring him in it. Do you fight to say no to temptation that you experience, especially perhaps besetting temptation? Do you fight to say no out of love for him, for what he did for you? Do you remember what he did for you and go, no, I'm not going to... Think these thoughts. No, I'm not going to say something as cruel as that. No, I'm not going to engage in that kind of behavior that so dishonors my Lord. Do you regularly and earnestly seek Jesus in his word? Regularly and earnestly. Do you? You see, if you're half-hearted in your Bible reading, you're not being like Mary. Finally and briefly. This text also not only reminds us of the um, speaks of the treacherous plot of the religious leaders to murder Jesus and the extravagant devotion of Mary shown to Jesus, but it also speaks of and the wretched betrayal of Judas uh, or of Jesus by Judas. In verses 14 to 16. This betrayal by Judas is triggered by, it appears anyway, uh, as best we can tell, uh, the text seems to be pointing this direction. It was, he decided to betray the Lord in response to Jesus' response to Mary's act of devotion. So he sees how Jesus responds to Mary and what she did with that nard, and it appears to have been the trigger that caused him to do what he went out and did. Probably, uh, one can kind of guess at this, but it's, it makes perfect sense that he came to the conclusion that instead of profiting from his ongoing affiliation with Jesus, as he had hoped to do, that he was actually aboard a sinking ship, whose captain was intent on sinking it with his own death wish. Perhaps he interpreted uh, Jesus' words to Mary that way. And he was like, I'm out of here. This is no longer looking good for me. And so he goes out and does what he does. He goes to the chief priests and says, what are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. This is probably Jesus. Excuse me, Judas' betrayal of Jesus is probably one of the most humiliating aspects of Jesus' suffering. I say that, you can think of all the ways he was humiliated, the uh, scourging, the the uh, r- removal of all his clothes, hanging on, in a public place uh, on a cross, bleeding to death, uh, all that is hor- horrifically humiliating, the spits in the face and so on. But in some ways, what Jesus, Judas did is perhaps, uh, it's certainly amongst the most humiliating aspects of it. Because as one of Jesus' one of the members of Jesus' inner circle. He goes to these wicked, vile men, these servants of the devil, these arrogant, self-righteous Jewish leaders, and he asks, what will you give me to betray him, who he had been with for three years? Hearing everything he said, watching everything he did, seeing his divinity day in and day out, and his moral purity, day in and day out. And this, this closest follower of Jesus goes to his arch enemies and says, what will you give me? Surely those men thought to themselves when, G, when Judas said that, something like this. This man has been with Jesus for three years, but he has the same regard for him that we do. He despises him. Jesus must be the hypocrite that we think he is. See, Judas allowed them, gave credence to their hatred of Jesus. Allowed them to feel good about what they were about to do to Jesus. They could absolve their own consciences in some perverted sort of way and placate any remorse they might otherwise have of killing an innocent man. No, it's okay. Judas, Judas hates him too. It's okay. No big deal. Of course, this is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. For the sake of time, I won't remind you of the te- read the text, but Psalm forty-one nine, Zechariah 11, eleven ten through thirteen both prophesy this very event. And Jesus' destiny is sealed. It is destiny, it's not fate. I use that word intentionally. Amen. But, here's the thing. Jesus was going to die when the Father said he was going to die. The plotters <clears throat> of Jesus' death said, not during the festival, verse five, the Almighty said, "Oh yes, at the festival. Verse two. You know that after two days, the Pharisee to be the not Pharisee, the Passover is coming, and meaning in two days, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up for crucifixion." Why did that change, by the way? Why did the religious leaders not get their way because Judas intervened. They didn't have Judas in mind. Judas came to them and said, "I'll give I'll give you Jesus if you give me money." And they were like, "Great idea." Jesus said, "I'll offer him up to you when an opportune time arises." Verse 16. And that opportune time came two days later, Passover evening. Not after the 21st, but on the 14th of Nisan. Many, we are told by Solomon, are the plans of man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, it will stand. And it did. God decrees folks, Everything. And he decrees when his own enemies, and you know what? When the enemies of his people will act, how and when they will act. Nothing is left to chance. So if you're ever persecuted, and if you live long enough and if the current trajectory of our society uh, continues, you will be in a big way especially you younger folks. You can know that your enemies, they can't do a thing unless God ordains it. And you can be comforted by that. God is in charge, even though it looks to be otherwise. God is deciding everything. Your job is just to be faithful until the end, whatever that is, whenever that comes and only God can give you the grace to do that. And me as well. Each of us who profess to be Christians need to find ourselves, I think, in this account. I think in some ways, it's, it may be a slight oversimplification, but it's not much of one. Each of us is either a Judas or a Mary, more or less. We're either a pretender who deep down inside really hates the one whom we profess to be following. Covenant breaker, in other words. Or, we are, like Mary, a humble servant, which all Christians will be. Not perfectly, but they will genuinely be humble servants who love Jesus more and more and want to show it by the way we live, act, speak, think, It's only by God's grace that you will be or are a Mary. A lover of Jesus. Perhaps you have not come to that point yet. Perhaps you are unconverted. Perhaps you have hated Jesus up to this moment, but this sermon somehow God has touched you and caused you to see that you are uh, deserving of hell. God's wrath in hell for eternity. And you realize that you have offended him sorely and all of a sudden your heart is grieved over what you've done and you hate what you've done and you want to be forgiven. If God will forgive you, he will forgive you. That's why Christ came to save sinners who repent of their sins and flee to Jesus in faith. Flee to Jesus and trust in him alone and you will be forever forgiven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that this is true. This is the good, the glorious news of the Christian faith, and it all hinged on whether or not you would, Lord Jesus, go to the cross or not and die in our stead. And you did. Willingly offer yourself up as an oblation, as a sacrifice to appease your own and the Father's and the Spirit's justice. Infinite justice was satisfied by you. How grateful we are that you are not just a God of justice, blindingly holy and righteous, but you're also a God of grace who has willed to give justice to to yourself, Lord Jesus, that grace might flow to those of us who trust in you. If there's anybody here today who's listening to my voice who has not trusted in you, solely you, as their Savior and their King, would you please give such a one saving faith? For the rest of us, Lord, would you please help us to live like Mary's this week? fleeing from temptation out of love for you, uh, joyfully keeping your day and celebrating uh, the rest that we enjoy and the greater rest that is still to come, that we would give of ourselves joyfully and not begrudgingly to you, and that we would be um, gleeful witnesses to a world that so desperately needs to hear Jesus' name. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore.